This is Guns and Butter. Now, as much as I'm a fan of infrastructure, I think uh, the name Belt and Road Initiative is simply tacked on to countries far uh, removed from uh, the China mainland in terms of kind of playing on the positive image of the, this uh, infrastructure project of the century. But uh, there is no ministry of the Belt Road Initiative in Beijing. There's no one central uh, place you can go to to coordinate everything. So in a sense, a little bit opaque. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, William Engdahl. Today's show, China. Real reason for U.S.-Venezuela clash? William Engdahl is an international political analyst and author. Among his best-known books are A Century of War, Anglo-American Oil Politics, and the New World Order. Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century, and Seeds of Destruction, The Hidden Agenda of Genetic Manipulation, completing a trilogy on the control of oil, food, and money. Today we discuss the crisis and the geopolitical stakes in Venezuela, its oil industry, the vast oil reserves of the Guiana Essequiba region, China's Belt and Road Initiative, specifically in the Western Hemisphere, the Chinese banking system, Chinese debt, and the flawed globalization model. William Engdahl, welcome. Well, thank you, Bonnie. It's good to be with you again. The United States has imposed sanctions, conducted financial warfare, and recognized Assembly President Juan Guaido as the legitimate president of Venezuela. Venezuela's electric grid has even been sabotaged. You've written that Washington's soft coup is hardly the U.S.'s urgent priority today. In your article, Is Oil Behind Washington's Venezuela Coup Madness?, You write that the claim that Washington's attempted coup in Venezuela is about oil is overblown. You've spent many years studying oil and the oil industry and have written books on the subject. What is your assessment of Venezuela's oil reserves in the Orinoco Belt, claimed to be the largest in the world? How would you evaluate Venezuela's oil? The... Oil in the Orinoco belt, which is today called the Hugo Chavez belt, uh, are enormous, but it's not conventional oil like you would find in Libya or Saudi Arabia or in uh, the Permian Basin in West Texas and places like that. It's called heavy oil. It's similar to the tar sands in Canada and requires unconventional methods to extract the the oil, usable oil, out out of that. That being said, the amount of reserves are estimated at almost 300 billion barrels as of about a decade ago, which would, if that were to be proven, that would be even larger than what's claimed by Saudi Arabia. So as a headline, it's quite impressive. And it's notable that... uh, John Bolton, uh, President Trump's security advisor, mentioned that uh, we're looking at the oil assets 
uh, as a major factor in terms of the, the uh, intervention on support of Guaido back in, in uh, end of January. So the oil is certainly an interesting element of this, but I think other factors going on around Venezuela have as much, if not more, to do with the reason for the U.S. intervention in uh, in Venezuela now and, uh, against the Maduro regime and on behalf of, of the Assembly President, uh, Juan Guaido. You also write about vast, unchartered oil deposits bordering eastern Venezuela into Guiana, Brazil, and the Caribbean. What is known about these oil reserves? Well, this is an area of, uh, how shall I describe this? It's a disputed area between Guiana, which is a former British colony, and Venezuela, if you look on the map of, of South America. And historically, there's an area in between the two, almost equal in land area to the entirety of British Guiana, which is called Essequibo. And Essequibo has been disputed between the two countries uh, for ages. Finally, in the 1980s, the presidents of both countries quietly declared a 12-year moratorium on Venezuela's attempt to reclaim Essequibo and allow time for a peaceful re resolution. Well, finally, in January of last year, 2018, the UN Secretary General referred the status of Essequibo to the International Court of Justice in The Hague, and there it sits today. Now, why, why is that interesting? Because three years ago, or three and a half years ago, Guyana, one of the poorest countries in, in the Americas, awarded an oil exploration contract to ExxonMobil, uh, Rex Tillerson's former company, as you recall, U.S. Secretary of State, briefly under Trump. And Exxon soon announced an oil field offshore of Guyana, estimated at 5 billion barrels, a very, very significant amount for the tiny Guyanese economy. And production will begin on this uh, estimated sometime next year, and that can transform Guyana into a uh, potentially much brighter economic horizon. And the prospects are that there's much, much more oil in offshore Guyana. It's very high quality. It's lightweight, which is ideal for making gasoline and other fuels. And uh, it's not this heavy, unconventional oil that you have in the uh, Hugo Chavez basin in Venezuela. So we know that the Essequibo region is still uh, off limits to, to uh, development until the dispute is settled by the international court. But what's interesting is that uh, not only is ExxonMobil involved in the offshore Guiana oil discovery, there's a joint venture partner with Exxon 
by the name of CNOOC, China National Offshore Oil Company. That's China's big state-owned uh, oil giant. So China has a stake there as well. China is the biggest creditor, over $61 billion worth, to the Maduro government in, in Venezuela. So we have the footprints of China uh, throughout this entire region. And I think this is a, a very significant factor in the Washington intervention into Venezuela at this point. This is my uh, informed guess or hypothesis or hunch, if you want to call it. But uh, if we look at the totality of that region from the standpoint of what China is doing, it takes on quite a different light from the standpoint of uh, U.S. alarm bells or Washington alarm bells going off, both for neocons like John Bolton and, and uh, others as well. So we can find that uh, not only is China involved in the offshore Guyana uh, oil exploration with ExxonMobil, China last year, in 2018, invited the government of Guyana, or Guyana itself, to join China's omnipresent uh, Belt and Road Initiative, this huge global infrastructure undertaking that uh, has to do with the construction of, of high-speed railway links across China and Eurasia, into Pakistan, into Russia, uh, and so forth, as well as a whole global network of ports. And this is something that's gotten relatively little attention, uh, but the Chinese investments in ports in the Americas is more than significant. Uh, for example, as part of the discussion with Guyana's government around the, the Belt Road Initiative uh, membership for Guyana, the Chinese are talking about and investing in building a highway link from Manaus, which is in northern Brazil, deep in the Amazon, through northern Brazil to the border of Guyana, and from there going directly to the Caribbean or to the, uh, to the ocean, where the Chinese are talking about uh, building a port in Guyana, a deep water port, that could ship goods from northern Brazil. This is the Amazon rainforest, one of the richest uh, biological areas on the planet, as well as minerals and untapped resources, rare earth, uh, you name it. It's, it's, it's virtually undeveloped because of lack of infrastructure and uh, ecological factors. But the Chinese are building this modern highway that will transform the entire area from Manaus in northern Brazil and the Amazon through Guyana uh, onto the uh, Caribbean, and from there, it could go saving thousands and thousands of miles of, of uh, shipping across sea from, from uh, Brazilian ports on the Atlantic 
going directly to the Panama Canal. And lo and behold, the Chinese in Panama have bought the largest uh, port in Panama called Margarita Island Port on the Atlantic side, which gives China intimate access to one of the most uh, pivotal choke points of goods distribution uh, centers in the entire world. So if we put all this together, uh, I think there's a case that can be made that uh, that the uh, stakes in Venezuela are far larger than simply the oil of the Hugo Chavez or the Orinoco Basin in Venezuela, the heavy oil there. I was about to ask you that if Washington's political and economic attack on Venezuela is not necessarily primarily about its oil, what could be the motivation? Now, it sounds like you're saying the greater motivation would be a geo-strategy to counter China. Is that right? That's that's what it it's beginning to look like more and more. The more information that comes to light, very little of, of this uh, Chinese activity has been covered in any detail in, in uh, Western media that I'm aware of, and I've done quite a bit of research on this. Uh, you have to go really dig deeply and find certain English language Guyanese journalists who have written some critical articles to find. Uh, even the slightest information of, of what's going on. But I think what we're looking at is definitely a geopolitical uh, factor in this. It's not simply about oil in the, in the way someone might argue that Iraq was about oil in 2003 when George W. Bush uh, went in there. But I think we're, we're looking at a strategic deployment of China at a time when the Trump administration has put China clearly in its crosshairs as a, as a major geopolitical, uh, if you want to call it threat or rival in terms of, of China's Made in China 2025, which includes 5G telecom technologies, which China's Huawei is far and away the world leading uh, producer of equipment for 5G, the next phase in internet uh, connectivity. There, there are many factors. There, there's also the factor in Venezuela that you have something like $100 billion in current market prices worth of coltan, which is uh, the source for essential tantalum that's used in, in military applications and in virtually all smartphones and, and uh, uh, tablets uh, in production today. China is a major producer of tantalum, as is the Congo, which is a continuing war zone. Uh, and it used to be that the United States had a major production of this, but during the Clinton and Obama years, most of those through environmental regulations and so forth, most of the tantalum mines in the U.S. Were, were forced to close down and much of the equipment was, was moved over to China. So it it's, has military implications as well. 
I'm speaking with independent writer, researcher, and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, China, real reason for U.S.-Venezuela clash? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You also write that National Security Advisor John Bolton has cited the Monroe Doctrine relating to Venezuela. And that is also an indication that this move against Venezuela is more geostrategic uh, than simply the oil in, uh, in Venezuela. Yes, well, definitely. It, it uh, was John Bolton, uh, I believe, who said, said that about the, we're not afraid to use the word Monroe Doctrine. This is a country in our hemisphere. Uh, just uh, for readers who, who may be rusty on their history, the Monroe Doctrine was drafted by Secretary of State John Quincy Adams and proclaimed in the State of the Union address by President Monroe, James Monroe, at a point where mostly all South American colonial nations had achieved independence from Spain or Portugal. And the doctrine, as proclaimed by Monroe, was that any attempt by European powers to establish new colonies in the Americas will be considered by Washington, quote, manifestation of an unfriendly disposition toward the United States. Well, what it was doing is declaring that uh, the new world would be a separate sphere of influence from the old world of, of colonial old world of Europe. And uh, ironically, the trigger for the Monroe Doctrine was a, a Russian uh, assertion of rights to the Pacific Northwest in 1821 and trying to forbid non-Russian ships from approaching the coast. But the Monroe Doctrine was largely a bluff because at the time the U.S. had no serious Navy and ironically depended on the British Royal Navy to keep uh, British rival power, European rival powers out, especially France at the time. So what are we talking about as the basis of a Monroe Doctrine in 2019, some almost uh, 200 years later? So this is kind of uh, a thin propaganda cover by, by Bolton. But uh, as you say, the real reason I think is very much geopolitical. And Russia is in there. Russia has just uh, landed a military aircraft in, in Venezuela a couple of days ago uh, with a very senior uh, Russian general and uh, I think 99 or 100 Russian special forces as a symbolic show against any uh, U.S. thoughts of, of military force on the ground. Frankly, I don't see that that's going to happen. I don't think the, uh, the Trump administration is about to do something as, as uh, foolish as put American troops on the ground in Venezuela. But uh, this is a power play that's being played out on, on many levels, I think. And one of them is the U.S.-China uh, pressure game. The other thing is that... Uh, if, if the pressure is put on Venezuela in terms of Venezuela, Guiana, in terms of uh, oil resources to China, at the same time the U.S. is pressuring uh, with sanctions on Iran, uh, potential oil deliveries there to China, we're talking about uh, potentially significant 
political pressure on China to come to the bargaining table on other questions, not merely trade questions, but but geopolitical questions. And there, uh, one can only speculate, but uh, that could be a potential uh, factor as well. How would you evaluate the democratically elected president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro? It's very difficult to get accurate information. Uh, Venezuelans I have spoken with say that Maduro is vastly different as a leader or or president from his predecessor uh, Chavez and different in a negative way. Uh, They claim that he has pretty much ruined the economy, that he, uh, behind the facade of of, uh, uh, helping the poor and so on, on, which was uh, uh, Chavez's legacy, that he has, in effect, ruined the economy. He's mortgaged much of it to China in in return for emergency credits, that uh, his government is involved in uh, severe corruption, uh, dictatorial measures against opposition, not only uh, US-backed opposition and, and media. So it's very difficult to say conclusively, but I don't see the Venezuela situation as uh, good versus evil, uh, that, that's a factor making it uh, even more difficult to, to do uh, any clear statements on this. But I, I think uh, Trump should stick to what his campaign pledge was to stop U.S. meddling in, in the domestic affairs of other countries. But that being said, if this is being forced by uh, the geopolitical actions of, of China in ways that we're not aware of, for example, the, the, uh, there have been sanctions on the former vice president of Maduro uh, for being involved in uh, narcotics trafficking up through Mexico and into the United States. Uh, if that's the case, then, then there's some uh, pretty nasty stuff going on around Maduro. But uh, Of course, uh, he claims it's all Yankee propaganda. So we have yet to have the the full neutral revelation of of, uh, what's going on around Maduro. But certainly in economic terms, he's a catastrophe similar to what you had in in, uh, Zimbabwe a few years ago. Well, do you think that uh, Maduro's... uh corruption or extreme measures to try and raise funds uh, could simply be a reaction to the pressure from the United States and Western countries, or has that been the situation with him all along? My sense, and I say this guardedly, is that it's been the situation all along, that uh, whatever the circumstance of Chavez's uh, death, that uh, Maduro is, has not pursued uh, policies that have been positive for, for the uh, uh, economy of Venezuela, that he's, uh, uh, he's wrapped himself around the uh, Bolivarian flag 
but uh, Chavez made made a center point of his term, but but uh, in, on the ground and in, in actual activities, I think he's done huge damage to the to the economy. He's also uh, dissolved the parliament that uh, he lost the majority into uh, the party of, of uh, Guaido. So he dissolved it and, and replaced it with one of his own liking. So I think he could have pursued different strategies economically that would have uh, avoided some of the extreme hyperinflation that we uh, see. But of course, the sanctions are a factor, but that doesn't uh, justify going in, into the narco traffic in a, in a major way. What countries are lining up in support of Venezuelan President Maduro, and which countries are supporting Juan Guaido to become president? Well, this is interesting. Uh, Turkey, Erdogan's Turkey, is, is strongly behind Maduro, as is China, as is Russia. Uh, Russia's oil company, uh, Rosneft, has about $10 billion of oil investments in the country, but, but by no means the scale of, of China's. You have, uh, on the side of, of Guaido, you have not only Washington, many of the countries of the Organization of American States, most of whom traditionally side with Washington, of course, but uh, you also have uh, much of the European Union, including Germany and France, uh, lining up against Maduro. So it's, it's a, a very complicated situation. Yeah, it sounds like an east-west split. Well, I don't know if it's even that clean, but but anyway, it's it's uh, it's a mess, <laughs> and I don't I don't see a, a dramatic change. I don't think the U.S. is going to make a military intervention. In fact, uh, Elliot Abrams uh, has admitted off record as much that this is more or less a bluff. You say that quote now new U.S. sanctions target the nationalized Venezuelan state oil company PDVSA. In what kind of economic shape is the Venezuelan state oil company? Catastrophic. They, they haven't invested. The late uh, Chavez regime took uh, funds from the PDVSA. Uh, by the way, it was nationalized, not, not by Maduro and not by Chavez, but uh, before that, an earlier president. But... Uh, who wasn't on, on a socialist agenda. But they haven't invested in the state-owned oil company, but uh, took took revenues from that company to build a political base among the, uh, the so-called Bolivarian Revolution movement. And the result is, is that the oil production of PDVSA has steadily declined. How important are global oil prices in evaluating the significance of Venezuela's oil reserves? Well, they're, they're quite important because if, if you have oil prices of 100 or $110 a barrel, which you did when uh, Chavez declared the 
reserves to be the world's largest. At $110 a barrel, that heavy oil, that unconventional oil, was economical to exploit. At $40 a barrel, which subsequently it reached when Saudi Arabia began trying to force the U.S. shale industry to scale back, back in 2014, those oil reserves suddenly became uneconomical, as did the Canadian tar sands, where production was closed down in a number of areas there in Canada. So it's very much an economic factor as to what, there's a term in reserves in the oil industry that's called economically recoverable. And as long as oil prices are at the present level of $60 a barrel or thereabouts, the heavy oil of Venezuela, for the most part, is not economic. It's not recoverable. So, yeah, it has very much to do with that. I'm speaking with independent writer, researcher, and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, China. Real reason for U.S.-Venezuela clash? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What countries is Venezuela indebted to, and would you consider the size of Venezuela's debt sustainable? After all, typically nations with oil reserves can easily cover a sizable amount of debt. Well, that's what Venezuela has been forced to do. Uh, Essentially, it can't pay its debt to China, its biggest creditor. China and Russia are the two biggest creditors today. So what it is doing is paying off the $61 billion in, uh, in oil, in the form of oil. I mean, it, its debt to GDP is uh, by no means uh, the largest in the world. But uh, the statistics are not reliable uh, today. But as, as of 2013, it was around 72% of GDP. But uh, the main creditor country is, is China. And there, there's the geopolitical angle, I think. And the Chinese drive a pretty hard bargain in terms of debt repayment. They are not known for generosity in terms of forgiving debt in countries like Sri Lanka or in Africa and so forth. Uh, rather, they say, okay, we financed your port here and you can't pay the, the loan back uh, uh, according to schedule. So we have a clause in the agreement that we simply take ownership of the port for 99 years. And uh, uh, for sure, they have similar agreements with with Venezuela, paid back in oil. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that China was so strict about debt repayment. Yeah, they, uh, if you look closely at the the small print, of course, a lot of this, the China uh, Silk Road, really is a fairly new undertaking. It uh, was declared officially by Xi Jinping in 2013, shortly after he became president. And that's a little bit more than five years of of, uh, existence. And in that time, it's taken uh, uh, several years until about uh, 2017 uh, to get something kind of in, in, in shape to call it a Silk Road project. And uh, now, as much as I'm a fan of infrastructure, I think uh, the name Belt and Road Initiative is simply tacked on to countries far uh, removed from 
the China mainland in terms of kind of playing on the positive image of the, this uh, infrastructure project of the century. But uh, there is no ministry of the Belt Road Initiative in Beijing. There's no one central uh, place you can go to to coordinate everything. So in a sense, a little bit opaque. You write that China signed Venezuela's neighbor, Guyana, to its Belt and Road Initiative in 2018. Chinese companies and money are presently building a highway link from Manaus in northern Brazil through Guyana, giving Brazil far more efficient access to the Panama Canal, which you have uh, discussed. What exactly is China's Belt and Road Initiative? I have tended to think of it as an Asian infrastructure project, but is the Belt and Road Initiative really global? It more and more is looking to be global. uh, President Xi Jinping was in Italy at the end of last week where he signed a memorandum of understanding uh, under great uh, protest from the European Union, from Germany, from France, to bring the first G7 country into the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of Italy. And they're in negotiation about investment in at least four ports in Italy, three in Italy and one in a uh, disputed uh, region called Trieste, uh, which is under a a special protectorate since 1947. But uh, building ports, uh, modernizing ports there so that Uh, China would have access not only to the uh, container port at Piraeus in Greece, which is now owned by a Chinese company, Costco, but uh, would also have port access to southern Europe through Italy. And that would be an economic threat to the northern European ports of Hamburg and uh, Antwerp and, and Rotterdam as well, to say nothing of Marseille and southern France. Then you have... Uh, China active all throughout Africa in in ports, not only, but in in road construction and and so forth. But if you look closely, much of this seems to be to facilitate Chinese access to vital raw materials, to oil and gas, and so forth in the African continent. And uh, it's increasingly becoming the case in in South America, where uh, two years ago, I think it was, it might have been 2018, Xi Jinping, when he invited Guyana to join the Silk Road, mentioned a potential South American investment of $250 billion over the next years from China's side. Well, politicians in less prosperous countries of the Americas tend to, their eyes tend to glaze over when they think of figures like $250 billion. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge geopolitical undertaking. How much of that will be realized, I don't think anybody can say right now, not even China. But uh, it's increasingly the case that the European Union is becoming alarmed with the expansion of China because what they're doing is building the logistical infrastructure that uh, is going to bring more and more advanced, high-tech Chinese-produced products into the European market 
cheaper and faster than ever before. And that's going to include automobiles. It's going to include 5G telecom technology. It's going to include uh, electronics. It's going to include biotechnology, gene editing, engineering, GMO. Uh, they own now Syngenta, one of the world's biggest GMO and uh, seed companies in Switzerland uh, and so forth. So some people are becoming alarmed that far from the win-win that uh, the Chinese uh, like so much to talk about, that uh, what they are looking at is, is kind of a version of a, uh, a Chinese century rather than an American century. And uh, well, the British empire is long gone, but uh, so Europe is now talking about a systemic threat geopolitically from China, the European Union, and uh, Macron in France, uh, of whom I'm not at all a, a great admirer. But uh, I think uh, European European uh, companies are, are beginning to become very concerned about this. What is the long-term Chinese strategy of its Belt and Road Initiative? What is motivating this gigantic infrastructure initiative? Well, Bonnie, what I, what I think is motivating it initially may not be what's motivating it today. Initially, it was a calculation by Chinese economists several years ago that uh, the saturation point of building infrastructure inside China was rapidly reaching a peak. I mean, you can only build so many uh, state-of-the-art skyscrapers and housing projects and so forth. 90% of the Chinese population uh, are homeowners, and 61% have become homeowners of new homes in the last 10 years. So that's because of the, the rising middle class. And, and hats off to China that they've done this phenomenal modernization. I've, I've been to China oh, something like 15 times over the past 10 years and seen much of this. It's, it's quite impressive. But at a certain point, they have seen the writing on the wall that they can only build so many high-speed rail tracks inside China that are going to be uh, profitable. So the idea of the, the Belt Road, uh, Belt Road Initiative, or this new economic Silk Road, Initially, I think, was the idea of creating export markets for Chinese steel production, for Chinese high-speed railway technology, for Chinese uh, export products and so forth, uh, Chinese shipbuilding. But you've, you've got such a colossal economic engine that's been built up over the past 34 years under the modernization of China and started by Deng Xiaoping at the end of the 70s, that uh, you've got to kind of, like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you've got to kind of keep that thing growing or it collapses in on itself. And I think that is the precarious point that uh, China is now confronted with. You know, how do you continue the growth levels? You can't. You can't continue 11% growth levels ad infinitum, especially because of the demographics of China the uh, unlimited cheap labor from the countryside peaked out around 2006, 2008 in that period. I think that had more than a little to do with the global 
financial crisis that, that erupted around then. But be that as it may, uh, the Chinese population is now demographically aging, as is the population in many countries. And you have a growing middle class that, uh, that demands its share of the pie, and the government is under enormous political pressure to deliver that. So I think that's become an overriding uh, factor. And I think there it's forcing China to make certain shortcuts in places like Pakistan or Sri Lanka or in Africa or perhaps in, in South America that uh, is creating uh, a lot of opposition to China around the world. I'm speaking with independent writer, researcher, and geopolitical critic William Engdahl. Today's show, China, real reason for U.S.-Venezuela clash? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In your article, Is Debt China's Achilles Heel?, you write that, quote, what is called socialism with Chinese characteristics looks more and more like the Western debt collapse model on steroids. What, <laughs> what is the Western debt collapse model, and how large and significant is China's debt? The debt collapse model that I talk about is, for example, if we look at South America during the uh, oil shocks of the 1970s, the Wall Street banks and London banks uh, and other European major banks, international banks, said, oh, it's no problem, Brazil, if you have to import oil, we'll give you floating interest rate, uh, low, low interest uh, loans here to finance your, your balance of payment deficit for oil. And by the early 1980s, the economies of South America had accumulated unpayable debts, foreign debts in dollars. At the time, 1979, when Paul Volcker created the interest rate shock in the Federal Reserve to save, quote unquote, save the dollar. And that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But what, in effect, the model was, was to use the International Monetary Fund to come in to Brazil and to Argentina and such countries in, uh, in South America and say, well, you can't pay your debt. The IMF will dictate uh, your economic terms. You have to privatize your state-owned companies. Uh, you have to uh, lay off uh, state workers, uh, cut your costs, uh, devalue your currency so that uh, holders of dollars can come in and, and buy up your crown jewels for pennies on the dollar. It's essentially the same model they used in, in Russia in the 1990s. So it's using debt to simply indebt these countries to a point they can't pay it. And when default looms, you come in and say, okay, I'm your friendly uh, collection agency. Uh, we're taking your house and everything in it as collateral for, for the uh, debt. Now, when I apply this to China, we have something called shadow banking in China. Uh, everything the Chinese do is, is in staggering scale, it seems. But uh, by beginning of last year, 2018, it was estimated that the size of shadow banking, these are banking loans from non-regulated uh, financial institutions, 
some of them indirectly owned by state uh, banks, but otherwise by trust funds that drew the savings of ordinary Chinese to invest in local government projects, not, not national, but local government or housing construction. So you had a huge boom all across China in shadow banking and in housing construction tied into the political fate of local governments. You know, as long as as construction was booming in in smaller Chinese cities, the local governments were enjoying prosperity and uh, who knows what. And the size of the shadow banking uh, approximately a year ago was estimated to be something like $15 trillion. And almost $4 trillion of that was savings of ordinary Chinese investing in the housing construction. So the whole housing boom, uh, I talked with uh, young Chinese working people, uh, you would say in American terms, middle class, who uh, bought an extra apartment as, as a financial investment because property prices were booming, very much like what happened in the U.S. back uh, 15 years ago during the real estate bubble. And so this created an illusion of of paper wealth for many middle-class Chinese. And the World Bank estimated about two and a half years ago that the size of shadow banking in China was equal to about one-third of the gross domestic product of the country. And much of this is is high-risk lending. So if the economy of China begins to slow significantly, this could become a huge problem. Now, when you mention the Western debt collapse model as it's applied to China, are you referring to what China could do to other countries that they are creditors of, or to what could possibly happen to the Chinese economy itself internal to China? I'm talking mostly internal, uh, the piece you refer to, but uh, of course that would have effect on, and it already is having effect in terms of the uh, liquidity that China is extending to different countries around the world, such as Venezuela. Uh, They're becoming a a little bit more uh, cautious about about extending liquidity uh, all around the world. But uh, there's one difference about China that that is important to keep in mind, however, and that is that the People's Bank of China is not modeled on the private Federal Reserve model or the Bank of England model. It's a state public institution controlled at the top by the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. And therefore, if the Politburo dictates that the PBOC creates X amount of credit, uh, they can do it and and, uh, there's no limitation because the currency of China, the renminbi yuan is is not uh, freely convertible at this point. It's only uh, guardedly convertible. But that being said, China is dependent on the increasing acceptance of the renminbi in international uh, trade as as a reserve currency. They're one of the uh, select few countries, the British pound, the Japanese yen, the uh, euro and the US dollar, and now the Chinese renminbi, which are in the 
reserve asset class of the uh, special drawing rights of the IMF, International Monetary Fund. That has been the case uh, since only two and a half years. So China is trying to build up uh, a credibility as a reserve currency until now it's been very limited. This is something that can take decades, but uh, certainly it did for the United States uh, between the 1880s and, and World War II. But it, it would have definitely an effect in terms of the Chinese economic clout in the world. I personally think the model of globalization that China has followed at the advice of uh, the Harvard-educated economists that uh, young Chinese students have been sent to American universities to study uh, over the past three decades, uh, that that globalization model is a fatally flawed model. It is not to the benefit of, of the country, but to the benefit of maybe 147 or 150 gigantic global corporations, including banks and, and investment funds, but not only, that, uh, that dominate world wealth. So China following that model is, I think, following a, a fatally flawed model. But that, that itself is a whole other discussion. Well, yes, you write that China's debt is mostly internal and its central bank and major banks are all state-owned. Doesn't this type of banking system protect the Chinese economy or are there still external dangers to China's economy? Well, uh, to the extent China is dependent on investment from outside investors and it hopes to get at least $100 billion in this current year of investment from funds in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. Uh, if they were to declare a debt forgiveness of, of this huge internal debt, uh, you know, to calm the situation internally in China, uh, then it would make the credit worthiness of China as an investment for pension funds in the West and so forth, uh, simply untenable. So it's, it's a complicated situation. 20 years ago, I would have said that it's, it's not a problem for China, but today it's, it's increasingly one. And when you talk about other countries investing in China, are you referring to the Asian Investment Bank that they set up? No, no, that was set up by China as part of the Silk Road project uh, with other countries in Europe and uh, UK and US uh, and Japan uh, and Canada, I believe, stoutly refused under Obama to take part in it. But uh, that's designed to create capital, to raise capital like the World Bank does, but for the Silk Road projects of uh, China. So it's, it's quite something different. It's not intended to invest internally in China. You've talked about the shadow banking in China as opposed to large state-owned banks, I think. How does the banking system actually work in China? Oh, I don't think uh, many Chinese understand that. Well, all of it used to be under the People's Bank of China when, when the mixed economy was still a top-down, 100% uh, state economy. Then, under the pressures of, of liberalization and the Deng reforms back in 79, 80, China began separating the state-owned banks. They're still state-owned, 
but uh, they separated them as individual banks and they became like the Japanese banks did in the 1980s. They became today the largest banks in the world on paper by balance sheet. And they mostly lend to large state-supported industries like Huawei, uh, which claims to be private, but in effect it's, it's uh, government-owned, and Costco or other uh, state enterprises. And recently, Xi Jinping began to uh, talk about reintegrating many of the successful private corporations into the state uh, enterprise umbrella. And that caused a, a huge backlash among private entrepreneurs in China who had some very, very successful companies uh, like uh, Jack Ma of, of uh, Alibaba and, and so forth. So it, it's, very, it's very complicated. And then you have, of course, what we talked about earlier, the shadow banking, which are these so-called trust funds that nobody really knows uh, what's going on there because uh, it's completely opaque. So if, if a, you know, an economic downturn occurs, if China is not able to uh, export as much of its goods to the world market as it did uh, because there's a recession in Germany or in, in Europe or the United States uh, puts tariffs on and so forth, then uh, that's going to have a domino effect on, on Chinese uh, economic performance. I would say China is at a very precarious point in its, in its development. And uh, to the extent they are more open to negotiate different terms of agreement with European corporations or companies or governments uh, and allow more European participation, let's just take the case of Europe, in uh, joint projects of the Silk Road, uh, let European construction companies bid on these projects. Until now, something like over 80% of all the uh, contracts have been awarded to Chinese companies and, and the labor has been Chinese and, and the uh, credit has been Chinese. So it's been very much a, a, a Chinese show or the, the uh, trade developments. So it's a very precarious time right now. I, I think... Uh, to rethink this whole globalization model that's uh, developed since the World Trade Organization and the uh, Bill Clinton era back in the 90s, uh, I think it's uh, well overdue. I've been a critic of, of the globalization model for uh, more than 20 years because it's, it's based on false economic premises. William Engdahl, thank you very much. Bonnie, I thank you, and uh, I hope it's been useful. I just want to stress in, in closing that uh, these problems are some of the most complex going on in our world today because uh, in, in a certain sense there are no simple answers of getting out from bad policies uh, back into good ones other than uh, a dramatic rethinking both on the side of Washington, on the side of uh, Venezuela, on the side of China and many other countries in Europe and so of, uh, of a model that uh, has simply benefited huge uh, uh, multinational corporations and, and international banks at the expense of most of the world's population. You're talking about the globalization model. Yes, yes, yes.
I've been speaking with William Engdahl. Today's show has been China, Real Reason for U.S.-Venezuela Clash? William Engdahl is an international political analyst, economist, and author. He is author of The Lost Hegemon, Whom the Gods Would Destroy, about the CIA and political Islam, and Manifest Destiny, Democracy as Cognitive Dissonance, about the National Endowment for Democracy and its role in regime change. He is also author of Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars, touched on in today's program. His books are available through his website at williamengdahl.com, where people can get his free geopolitical newsletter with chapters from his various books and research. That's williamengdahl.com. Email him at info at williamengdahl.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying?